episode of Triple Threat. Hey, yo. Hallelujah. Burn the mic check and we're ready to go. Hallelujah. You did Are a nod. Re- <laughs> what? Sorry, go ahead. I, I don't really have much prepared. Let Am just- I ready for what? Uh, are you ready to record some more? Hallelujah. Do you think this song is a bore? <laughs> in your social circle, do you have friends where you're like just hanging out in your apartment together, having drinks or something, and you just start singing because a song occurs like in your inner monologue and you have to start singing because... You're Anthony, and the moment that there's any melody in your brain, you must repeat it out into the world. Yeah. And so I was wondering, like, do you have friends that play yes and with this particular impulse that you have, like where they sing along with you, and then you guys just jam together, a cappella style in your living space? Well, I mean, my main disability is spinal muscular atrophy, but then my secondary disability is musical Tourette's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so if I hear a song in my head, it's like an itch that cannot be scratched until I sing it out loud. And more than often, yeah, I'm parodying the song. And yeah, uh, sometimes friends will sing along. So have your doctors been like super ineffective at treating your musical Tourette's? Yeah, because uh, the problem is I'll be on the phone calling the doctor to try to explain that I need help. Yeah. And I'll start singing on the phone and then they just hang up because I think it's a prank call you're like doctor please help you're the only one I need what song is that I don't know is it like baby come back I don't I don't I don't have musical Tourette so I can't play this game that's okay I, I don't want a disability shame you <laughs> what is your secondary disability my secondary disability is film Asperger's mm, that's true what year did Jaws come out 1979. Who was the eighth build person on that cast? Uh, I don't know. So you just have years? You just remember the years? Yep. I, I don't... The thing is, my movie knowledge is so superficial uh-huh. that I can't even give you a challenging one to think of. Really? Because I'll just be like, all right, Toy Story. And then everyone knows that, you know? Oh, I was wrong about Jaws. It's 1975. I'm a, I'm a fraud. So again, you don't even have a secondary disability. I guess I don't. I guess I don't. Just a one-trick CP pony. I mean, I, I guess my my secondary disability is that sometimes I will talk about movies to the point where I tune everyone else in the discussion out, mm-hmm. and I don't realize that I'm actually being quite rude. Do you have group friends that you can talk to endlessly about it, or are most are you always the friend that people are like, all right, we get it. You know stuff. <laughs> well, I, I, I have the circle that you and I share, which is full of like recovered hipsters who, you know, have like a wide breadth of appreciation for all kinds of pop culture. Yeah. And so I can generally like brain dump myself onto them and then they will respond with as much like you know, constructive feedback or related anecdotes as they can. And it kind of makes me feel whole, you know, like it like alleviates the, the anxiety that I have lumbering around with all of this 
unprocessed feelings toward movies. You have like pent up movie. Yeah, it's like it's like when a when an athletic person doesn't go to the gym for a long stretch and they just get like the they get like cabin fever and they desperately need to get those endorphins or else they're going to start bursting at the seams. That's what I'm like with you know after I watch a string of movies and can't really talk about it with someone. Is it a certain number of movies or just like how many movies before you actually get cinema blue balls? Well, I get cinema blue balls the moment I finish watching a movie that I absolutely loved or like three or four movies that were generally mediocre, but unremarkable for extremely like conversational reasons. Like movies that you like talking about. Do you, do you have movies that you hate so much that you love talking about them? Oh my God, of course. Yeah, I saw Tenet on the weekend. I have a, I think Tenet is one of the first films in my life where I have like a moral objection to watching it. Why? Because Christopher Nolan wanted people to go to the theaters to watch it during a once in a hundred year pandemic. And I just thought... Like, this is a person that I respected deeply up until this moment. Oh, yeah. Like, his movies are so pretentious. Like, he, you can tell that he's making the movie being like, yeah, I don't get them confused. Again, well, his movies are like, um, they're cinematic Rubik's Cubes. Yeah. But he doesn't solve them by the end of the movie. So you're still left. Like, Inception, you could understand that movie. And it was like... Yeah, like it makes sense, but it's ridiculous. Like, come on. Did you feel like your uh, programming courses in university helped you understand Tenet? No, because he even, like in the movie, he's like, don't try to understand this. Like, he knows that the movie is so bizarre. He's just like, here's a pretty cool idea, right? Uh, We'll probably won't flush it out fully, but it's still going to be okay. His mastery of temporal... um, continuity or asynchronousness is so incredible he's very very good at weaving technical plot do you think you'll ever watch it i don't know i maybe i will watch it eventually i kind of want him to apologize for making people go to the theater i mean i don't i don't know if that's an unreasonable request but i i don't know it it felt like a betrayal of sorts to be honest with you i know that's melodramatic and i don't usually feel this strongly, but I get it. I get it. it's true that it was weird for him to force people to go. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, no, like I, I'm, I don't even have a defense for him. But I think eventually you should still watch the movie. Could you imagine if we recorded an episode of our podcast in some parallel universe where a large percentage of the global disabled population actually actually listened to us? And we told them in order to hear this one particular episode, which is maybe one of the best contemporary episodes we've ever recorded, you must climb to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro and it's inaccessible and we don't care. Yeah. And you have to do it during the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that even what he's saying? Is he saying that anyway? I'm... What he's saying is that I make movies that observe the uh majesty of the cinematic environment and without the big picture and the big sound and everything else all of my effort is for naught and so if you don't see 
this movie within the environment that it is designed for, then you are not getting the experience that I intended for you. And therefore your reception of it will be incorrect and you will not be able to appreciate my genius properly. And my whole reputation will be whatever because of it. And it's like the amount of hubris. It's ridiculously pretentious. Yeah. Like he, he is in terms of like putting butts in seats and making some really interesting movies with relatively new ideas and innovations, like uh, practically special effects wise. And also in terms of storytelling, he is quite gifted, but he's almost like if an engineer decided to be a storyteller, yeah. like he, he doesn't really have, he doesn't, re- his films don't really concern themselves with characters or emotions. <clears throat> and he's always got these main characters that are obsessed w- with executing a particular task or achieving a particular goal, like to the, to the detriment or suffering of the loved ones of the, of the people around that main character. And it's like, it's, it's almost like every story he tells is about the struggles that he has with his wife or immediate loved ones, <laughs> uh, them having to deal with the, the significant burden that he's placed upon his shoulders. He's like, they're like, come down for dinner. He's like, yeah, but I have to figure out the line that I'm going to use to reverse the movie. Yeah, and I have to figure out the perfect cinematography for this one like incidental action scene that still needs to be executed better than any other action scene that you've seen in the last 10 years or some some BS like that. Like The man thinks that he is uh, a proper auteur from like the 70s and 80s. And I just kind of disagree with that. I think I think that the Dark Knight and and the the genius of the Ledger Joker sort of inflated his significance. There's a chance that he was doing it out of hubris and entirely to say, I'm doing you guys a favor by making you watch it in the theater because yeah. you won't be able to enjoy it to its fullest if you don't. So for well, us, what he's saying is that his film is literally worth the risk of COVID, which is absolute horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think we'd be doing people a favor if we made a Patreon where instead of paying money, you actually have to like submit a picture of yourself standing beside your wheelchair and that's how you pay or like at the top of a flight of stairs? I sorry, we make a Patreon where we encourage people to do things that are ostensibly beneficial to them. Well, I don't know. Is it beneficial to say you, a disabled person, should walk up a flight of stairs? Now we're back to your your flight of stairs behind oh, you again. I, I see what you're saying. You're you're asking me whether my um physical autonomy is is actually worth it or if it's harmful to me. So like if we go back to your example of making them go to the top of Kilimanjaro. Uh-huh. What if we're doing them a benefit and they get to the top and they're like, wow, I really should have done that. <laughs> How you measure what benefit a particular feat is to a person yeah. is difficult. What is your Kilimanjaro, Jamie? What is my metaphorical Kilimanjaro? Yeah. Oh, that's a very interesting question. I think it would be some kind of short story. Like if I if I could pick a moment in my life, yeah, or 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 a story in my life that spoke to a majority of my experiences or whatever my 
general impression of life actually is. It was like a story about my dad being a good dad. Or would you write an autobiographical story or would you write like an abstract story that metaphorically relates to your experience? I don't know if I can, if I do very well with subtext. Well, it would take time, I suppose. I, I guess for timelessness sake, if you have a really good idea, then it is probably most beneficial to encase it in, in, a, in an abstract metaphor rather than something autobiographical. The simplest way to do that would be to write a kid's book, right? Because it's like, those are easy metaphors to land on. Like you could write a Dr. Seuss book, like the man in the chair who had lots of hair. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've, my story would definitely be autobiographical. That's where I think um, the most relatable humor comes from. When you can speak to your own experience, and even if it's a if it's a tragic situation, or if a lot of the underlying emotions are are sadness, like there's a lot you can there's a lot you can pull out of that. There's a there's a lot to mine. I'd probably tell a story about Carlton, or you know, some road trip that I went on with my dad as a as a teenager, or maybe. Uh, one of my adventures uh, going to music festivals or road trips in Thunder Bay with my guy friends. Like a, 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 a story where it was harrowing, but you feel better as a result. Like you feel like you came out on top. I think it would just be a story about a, a, that particular experience. And I don't know if I would infer a whole lot about life from it. But it would just be as true an account of those events as possible and any funny observations I could come up with along the way. Yeah, but I think the way you write, if it's anything like the way you speak, would be enough for people to be able to draw those metaphors easily out. Okay. You should do it. We should set a goal. Let's say the podcast reaches a certain milestone and you must start working on your story. Or I'll just start checking in, like a gym buddy. Every week, I'll be like, "All right, how, how's your story going? How many reps? What's your what's your words? How many how many words Word. per per week? Yeah, WPW. It's it's difficult talking about the creative process, like for the sake of entertainment, because you don't want to be too forth- forthcoming with any kind of creative methodology, or else, like the inherent mystery of the author is kind of lost and then the creative work is much less interesting i don't know if that's true because like you know there's like cults of personality so people might read your story because they know you and because they want to find out about you it might not be the other way around where they they want some veiled mystery really to read about it might be a little more relatable if they just learn who you are I get what you're saying. Like, yeah, I don't think it would be all that entertaining to dive into your process per se, but because you've been talking about this for a while and I think it is something you want to do. So you should do it. You don't have anything to lose. Well, thank you, Tony. I, I think you're the first person I would want to encourage me to do something that scares the shit out of me. Unless it's like, unless it's like skydiving Oh, yeah, I think you should go skydiving, too. (laughs) 
I think if you if you ever if you ever saw one I'm like just before I'm about to go down the highest peak of a roller coaster, yeah, you might not be encouraging me so much. I want you to go skydiving, but for that one, I do want you to document the entire creative process. Like the like uh, the entire creative process or my stream of consciousness while the thing was occurring? Your stream of consciousness, the anxiety that you go through, the logistics, because that would be interesting. I know a guy in a wheelchair who went skydiving. And his name's not Tony? No, I haven't been skydiving. Okay, the person who went skydiving, like, is he like a daredevil risk taker, motherfucker? No, I think he just... He's not a motherfucker? He's not a motherfucker. He definitely, I think it was just kind of, you only die once kind of thing. Okay. And he... He didn't die skydiving, right? No, no. I, I guess I I would have led with that for sure. <laughs> and I probably wouldn't be encouraging you to try it. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, you should. Uh, I don't know if your people have died skydiving. You should try it. It's totally worth it. No, yeah. Uh, I don't know. They they did like a tandem thing where they strapped him onto it. He had, he was spastic, so he was able to be like rigid. Oh. Uh, I, I don't think I would do it. I honestly think my limbs would just fly and like, I, I would knock out the skydiver unconscious with my floppy neck. Couldn't they just put you in like a spastic suit? Like a full body cast? Well, yeah, like a like a like a Tony protective case like you put on your phone, but it's for Tony's body. Love to see if they sell those on Amazon. <laughs> I think I would go skydiving in theory. I, I I'm not scared of it and I think I would enjoy the rush and the experience. But logistically, I don't, I can't conceive of a way where it would be safe enough that I would feel comfortable doing it. Have you ever lost control of your power chair at a very high speed? Yeah. I one time, this was years ago, I was in like elementary school. Uh-huh. And I used to have, uh, I used to have to go to the staff bathroom because it was the only accessible bathroom in the building, in the school. Uh-huh. And it was like on the other end of the class, on the other end of the school. Did you ever get shit for that? For going to the staff bathroom and there was like one stickler teacher's like, hey, just because you're disabled doesn't mean you're a staff. No, because I had to go with that staff. Oh, okay. Because I used to get pushback from Catholic school teachers for special treatment and it always, it always used to upset me so much. Yeah, no. So I had this because it, it was still not accessible enough for me to really use it so they had to transfer me to like a table and then i would just pee on a table what yeah what like like one of those like baby uh stations in a public bathroom yeah it was just like a a wooden table in a bathroom that they put there strictly for me to to go to the bathroom and like was it like like was there a mat on top of it or something or was it just i think it was padded or it had a mat or something you think I can't quite remember. Imagine if you got a splinter in your ass from having to pee on a rugged table. <laughs> it wasn't. I just chopped down a tree and threw it in the bathroom. <laughs> it's just like a picnic table. It didn't still have bark on top. <laughs> I just like, well, like I, I just the depth of the inhumanity. It just never. It there's no there's no bottom to that 
it, it wasn't super comfortable, I remember. So I would bring a pillow. <laughs> and usually the pillow was a stuffed animal puppet okay. that was like lying around in one of the classes. Or Wait, what? Does that mean you'd put it back after? Yeah. I didn't no. It. it was just under my head. No, oh, under your head. Okay, I thought it was under your ass. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't have it. Remember, I used to be fat. Have I never showed you fat pictures of me? I thought you said that you were like anorexic on your first day at Carlton. Yeah, I went from when I was like five, I was chunky, like super round, rotund. Why? Because your mom just kept feeding you chocolate bars? I, I don't know. Maybe it was because I was still able to eat unimpeded. So I just kind of ate everything. And then I got skinny because it got harder to eat. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's honestly a really good diet plan. If anyone out there is struggling to lose weight, you could try getting muscular dystrophy of some kind. Okay. Back to this uh, head pillow in the staff bathroom. It was a puppet with a hole, right? A puppet. You know how puppets work. Uh-huh. And on the way back from the bathroom, out of curiosity... I tried putting the puppet on my joystick, thinking that would look hilarious. And I did. And then the puppet flopped forward and I couldn't get the puppet back off the joystick. So I just started going full speed <laughs> towards a brick pillar in the school. No. Yeah. And I, I, the only thing that stopped me was my foot blade crashed into the pillar and my chair came to a complete stop. And I didn't hurt myself or anything. That's good. Nowadays, I would have broken an ankle if that happened. Yeah. But yeah, I, those foot plates were pretty strong. Were the foot plates made by Nokia? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I, yeah. Did you ever? Uh, did you ever <laughs> drive your chair into a cliff? We've talked about this. Remember when I drove my scooter halfway through the Carlton cafeteria? That's a great one. And I and I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. Is that your only incident? I've had moments where I've been accidentally going too fast down a hill in my walker in the Carlton tunnels. Oh. And I have to ask somebody who's coming toward me to put their foot out to stop me. <laughs> really? Yeah. Do they ever not do it? They always do it. And they always like, they would always like make sure I was okay afterwards. I've had to ask people to turn my chair off while I was driving. Like perfect strangers? Yeah. Like I remember one time going over to a friend's house and it was like fall. So it was a bit cold, warm enough that I thought I could do it, but cold enough that I probably shouldn't have. And about three quarters of the way there, my hand was getting so cold that I really couldn't move. Uh -huh. So I really couldn't control my chair. And sometimes when that happens, it's not that I can't drive. It's that I can't stop driving. Yeah. So I was just stuck forward which has happened before we've talked about other times man that's so terrifying yeah but i was outside crossing a street and i realized i couldn't actually stop so i had to ask a random person on the other side of the sidewalk to hit the power button on my chair did you have to yell no i i tried to be so calm i was like Hey, do you mind just hitting that green button at the top of like I was just like driving away? <laughs> and they're like walking beside me, like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> you oh, could yeah, like... just hit that green button. <laughs> you could turn your head to like 
to be audible to them while you were driving away. <laughs> Can you please grab the green button? <laughs> Luckily, she did it, and it was totally fine. And then I got her to like reposition my hand, but it was it was really embarrassing. And then you went on, and then you got her number, and you went on four dates, and it was happily ever after. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> What were we talking about before this? Your Kilimanjaro. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is there anything that you want to do that you haven't done that you need somebody to push you to do to do it? Um, I don't know. I, lately, I've been consciously pushing myself outside of my comfort zone, just in general. It feels good. I went outside of my comfort zone a couple of days ago, and I I realized how small my comfort zone has gotten in the last two years. What did you do? All I did was go to a friend's house to sit at his bonfire and I talked to my friends outside in person for a whole evening. That's amazing. Yeah, I just like I haven't really like I've had people at my own place, like where I feel safe and I can go to the bathroom and yeah, like I, I generally know how things are going to go. But the, this COVID anxiety has been so consuming. And it's sort of allowed me to indulge these like hermit tendencies that I was developing after a breakup that I had in 2017. And so I sort of, after that happened in 2017, like my, my desire to go out like diminished a lot and my like general gregariousness and want to party like sort of died for a while. And then You know, so I'm still seeing my core group of friends and still going out from time to time, but very rarely like the initiator of things or like really seeking out fun. And you could argue as well that it's a a byproduct of, you know, turning 30 and wanting to devote your energy to different things and trying to curb bad habits and think longer term, et cetera, et cetera. But I definitely... I, uh, certain habits sort of ceased and then COVID hit and I just sort of went deeper into that, that hermit like mentality. Well, it was like a good excuse, right? It's a really good excuse. Yeah. You're just like, Oh, I mean, I, what did you do this weekend? And you don't have to feel weird about being like nothing. Cause that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. That's the socially responsible thing to do. Yeah. I didn't do anything. And I'm, you should pride me in that case. Why? Did you do something, you Christopher Nolan motherfucker? Like, yeah. I, I went out this weekend, and for that, I apologize. The la- I was trying to remember the last pre-COVID outing I had that was social. That wasn't my place, but it was a bar, and I had to go pretty far back. Damn. It kind of scared me, really. Yeah. Because, you know, like all all the versions of yourself that there are kind of like as you as you grow up, like for each major phase of your life, like you kind of, there's like a new version of yourself and it's not a huge standard deviation each time, but it's enough such that when you reflect on your life and you're trying to remember like, Oh, you know what happened in 20 in 2012? Oh, well I was doing this and I was that Jamie. And And these movies came out, these movies came out and these were the things I was stressing about. I kind of realized that the major standard deviation from when I started my job in 2015 to like today, like it's a pretty major shift from the way that I used to be. And with you, 
I'm like my regular gregarious self where I'm like trying to attempt to make jokes and I'm active listening and I'm enjoying the conversation and I don't feel nervous or uncomfortable. But you're in your comfort zone, right? I am in my comfort. Like, well, arguably the podcast is sort of out of my comfort zone because right. I'm like releasing this deeply personal sometimes conversation out into the world for other people to listen to. And a lot of times it's pretty raw and like unfettered and whatever. And, you know, so there's a risk factor to it and whatnot. And so, yeah, like it's, it's a safe way, ironically, for me to be out of my comfort zone. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, like when I talk to you, I feel like myself before, before COVID and before my breakup. And then like, when I'm by myself in this house, which is also sort of like a reminder of what I kind of left behind in order to pursue other things, yeah. it's not really the best of headspaces on occasion. Do you feel now inspired to you know, do more stuff and get out there? Yeah, it was a small step in the right direction, I think. Like just a, yeah. a small like social gathering to remind me, like, yeah, even if you do feel anxious in, during that outing, it's not the end of the world. So how many more bonfires before you move out of Thunder Bay? <laughs> I have maybe another three or four. Oh, that's not bad. No. If you do one a weekend, it should be popping off by the end of summer. Yeah, ready to move by autumn? Yeah. I'm going to start asking your friends to have more bonfires. <laughs> yeah. The guy, who, the guy who has them, like, he usually has them a couple times a month, especially in the summer. And he's like one of the most outgoing people I know. And he's also a nurse. So he has like uh, reservoirs of empathy in addition to the average person, I would say, because he sees people in crisis every day. And he tells me all the time that he's experiencing major compassion fatigue, professionally speaking. But I kind of respectfully doubt him because I still see him working pretty hard to involve people in the conversation, like when we're out socially and um, when we do things like he, he's like, he kind of has that, like, like the Judd, the friend in a Judd Apatow movie that's like encouraging you to do things and try things right. and, and, and take risks. But then at the same time, he's also very like open and understanding. <clears throat> so it's this weird kind of, kind of uh, a combination of traits, but he has them quite often. And I think I've, I've said no to the bonfires maybe a dozen times in a row and he keeps fucking he keeps fucking trying so i i have a debt of gratitude toward him he's like the steven seagal of i love you man <laughs> what well steve steven seagal of late is i mean jason seagal oh jason seagal. did you see <laughs> sorry did i hear steven and you said jason no i think i said steven okay okay <laughs> I was like, yeah, he's Steven Seagal. That's amazing. <laughs> he's like, what? Like an action hero uh, who looks like Trump and acts like Trump? Yeah, Jason Seagal. Yeah. Jason Seagal, yeah. Uh, yeah, of I Love You, Man. Anyway, COVID has basically forced everyone to look inward and try to figure out what's important. Yeah, and a lot of the um, discomfort with doing that has manifested as like a rebellion toward the popular story of what COVID is and how we should treat it. Right. And it's created this like divide 
I've never experienced in my life. And I'm sure that that's the case for everyone. And I don't really know, I don't really know how to react, but I'm, I'm sort of hoping for a new day sooner than later. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I was out on the weekend also, and I went downtown. I hadn't been downtown in like a year. You know, I'd still been going out and I'd go to patios and stuff, but I ha- haven't gone to like the heart of downtown in a while. Mm-hmm. Like a place where you can't hear all of your thoughts because of the, ve- the vehicular traffic. And and people can't hear me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was just bizarre because a lot of people were out. It was a relatively nice weekend. The weather was pretty good. And it really just felt like it, like everyone had been in hibernation and the world was like spinning back up. Oh, yeah. It was really bizarre. Like booting up an old disk drive? It was, it was kind of surreal to just hear the din of people around you. And uh, it was just like you almost forget that there are people. <laughs> that is so true. Your life becomes a lot smaller. And then, and then by virtue of that, it's so much easier to um, get lost inside your own head. I felt like almost high because everything, I was just so in awe of every little thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I would see everyone look interesting to me. Every conversation sounded interesting. Every like painting on the wall was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And it was just because I haven't seen that stuff in a while. You took none of it for granted. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the sensation of being in a crowd that is surprised to see itself. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of cool. It was really cool. Was it all positive vibes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't cite any weird thing that happened. <laughs> Even on the way back, some random super drunk guy uh, tried to props me and then realized I wasn't moving my hand. Aww. So he... He came in and like he he was waiting at 50% and then realized I wasn't going to meet him. So he came all the way to 100. Oh, yeah. And usually that would be kind of annoying because it's just like you're not seeing me. You're just I'm just like a vehicle for you to feel like you're doing me a favor by saying hi to me or whatever. Yeah. You are only what he thinks you are in his imagination. Yeah, and then you know he's not propsing everyone. He's just propsing you because he's basically saying congratulations for getting out of the house. Yeah, But I did feel like I needed congratulations <laughs> because I hadn't gotten out of the house. And I bet you he hadn't gotten out of the house either. So he was just as excited to be out of the house as I was. That's so funny that finally that one line that we've heard like every day in our lives, like since we turned 18 and was able to go to the bar, like, oh, it's great to see you out. Like, this is the one context. Where you're like, you too. Yeah, you too. (laughs) Yeah. And you can say it without seeming like a sarcastic or, you know, passive aggressive douche. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really nice. Um, I, I, I don't, I went on the train, like, you know, Ottawa got a new underground train. Isn't that train like a total shit show or is it still a shit show? Well, it was when it first started. Now it's pretty much settled down. Um, But I went on it just basically because it was like, 
kind of cool to feel part of a city again, you know? Yeah, I totally understand that. I love riding trains. Yeah. I mean, like that could be an extension of my obsession with film, if you catch my drift, but like... Right, because you're watching stuff happen in front of you? No, it's like there are some topics that, you know, people on the spectrum are traditionally obsessive over. Is that a thing? Yeah. Really? People on the spectrum are traditionally into trains? I mean, it's pretty common. I don't, don't quote me on it or look for citations or cancel me for it. But I think it's a thing. I I mean, I was obsessed with trains when I was a kid. Yeah. That's a pretty common thing for young boys to be fascinated with. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, uh, I love riding the train because it's like, it's, 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 it's weirdly comforting. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's soothing and it, it, it feels like a good pace. Yeah. Like an airplane, I get it. You get where you're going faster. And for a lot of destinations super far away, another mode of transportation just isn't feasible or practical. Yeah. But if you can manage, like if I'm going to Toronto, it's a four or five hour train ride. Yeah. And I would much rather do that than a four or five hour drive. And I'd much rather do it than a 45 minute or two hour plane ride. Yeah, because it's like a prescribed, like linear track that you're on, and you're sort of you're pretty well guaranteed to get there without any kind of incident. And there's not a whole lot of variables that can go wrong, and you're not like really too beholden to like human error or the risk of human error. Yeah, and it, and it, and like you, you can just get on this train, which doesn't isn't really inhabited by the hustle and bustle of like metropolitan life. That's what I liked about it. Yeah, there's something oddly like homely about it and welcoming. Yeah. And if you're a wheelie, like you pretty much get first class treatment all the time. Right. Because the only place on the train where there's enough space is in first class, like for your chair. So they always put you there. And then it doesn't matter if you actually bought a first class ticket because like now you now you're a first class customer. So yeah. you get all the fixings. And it's just love. You just, it's great. Yeah. It's crazy the difference traveling as a wheelie between a train ride and a plane ride. Because a, a train ride is just like you described. And then a plane ride, you know, you have to check your wheelchair and basically you have to go above and beyond to first make sure your chair can fit in their hobbit sized cargo hold door. Yep. That usually involves basically disassembling your wheelchair in some form. Yep. So you have to know how your chair disassembles and you have to be prepared to tell them how to reassemble it on the fly while two like non-trained flight attendants who've never taken like a physio course in their lives, like are are, are sort of like they tie you to like a, a piece of luggage carrying like bullshit wheelchair. It's a suitcase with wheels on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they 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 tie you to it with fucking bungee cords. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, how do we put your chair back together while you're in this like unnaturally uncomfortable chair? And then you get to get you because you're first in before the luggage goes in. Yeah. Or before the, the wheelchair goes in, you get in your seat in the airplane and then you look out the window and get to watch them destroy your wheelchair as they're putting it on the plane. 
Yeah, because usually the people who are loading the plane are like 22-year-old guys who are just like fucking about and like bored. Yeah, they're used to just throwing bags into a bin. Right, and they don't think they have an audience, so they never behave like they do. Yeah. And so you're like, dude, that's my like... $30,000. Yeah. 30 Mine was like 28 Oh, you got all the fucking features fully loaded. Yeah. I was just thinking, you were saying that when you're in a large urban center, like people can't hear you because of the general sound of city life. Yeah. Uh, and then I was thinking, like, have you ever had like the equivalent of a of a voice amplifier to solve that problem? But then I was also thinking that if you ever did have that, then people would mistaken you for like a street performer. <laughs> Like, I'd be wearing one of those microphones, and everything I said was like a TED Talk. Yeah, and, like, they'd be expecting you to bust out of the chair and do some sort of, like, street-level acrobatics. But and they don't, Or they would just be expecting me to say something really profound and educational. Yeah. But instead, I would just be like, do you know where the nearest bar is? Or, like, <laughs> do you know how to get to this street? <laughs> can i get the attention of the byword market <laughs> am i going east or west <laughs> oh my god that would be so funny <laughs> <laughs> to get people primed for like some sort of welcome <laughs> gather around i have a question to pose to everyone <laughs> please Settle down, settle down. <laughs> Which street are we on? <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> That'd be so worth it. That is so funny. Oh man, we should call Nathan Fielder right now. <laughs> We've had some pretty good YouTube skit ideas. I think we might have to do a spin-off YouTube channel. I think so too. You're really going to have to expedite these bonfires so you move back to Ottawa. Okay, I'll work on it, I promise. I think I'd rather Kilimanjaro you to Ottawa before you get your book started. <laughs> Which street are we on? Lend me your ears. <laughs> or you use it just to like blow raspberries. <laughs> Is this a good fart noise, you think? <laughs> wow. <laughs> did we even watch a movie this week, Tony? Oh, yeah, we did watch a movie. God. Oh, oh, God. You know, I think when like a movie is unremarkably bad, it's a lot worse than if it's bad in an interesting way. Why? There's more to talk about with this movie. Is there? Isn't there? We we watched a movie called My Blind Brother, and it stars Nick Kroll and Adam Scott, both very well-known comedians, writers and actors in such popular TV shows as Kroll Show and Parks and Recreation and Party Down. Am I right to say that you don't like Nick Kroll? I have a problem with Nick Kroll, and I've never quite articulated it, but I, I do not like him. And you still aren't able to articulate it? Well, I think there's something in him or about him that is vaguely mean-spirited. And like he belongs in the Brad Pack of Adam Sandler. But he's always trying to make 
comedy that endears people to him and there's something disingenuous about it. And so I don't really like him all that much. Plus, I think one time I read that he comes from a very wealthy family, so he may not have made it into comedy by virtue of actually being funny. And that in and of itself sort of makes me not like him. So I probably have not given Nick Kroll a fair shake. Yeah, because like, that's not fair. Like that That's to say that no wealthy people are able to be good comedians. Well, I, I don't think that's what I'm saying. I think I was just saying that his big break may not have actually been a product of talent. Right. But you don't know that. But then he's kind of leveraged it to be like a half-decent comedian. Big Mouth is hilarious. Yes. The premise of My Blind Brother is uh, Nick Kroll is the brother of a blind man. Nick's brother, played by Adam Scott, is kind of a terrible person. Um, like he's he's all consumed by his disability and he's super focused on um, overcoming it by like virtue of athletic achievement. So the movie opens with uh, Nick and Adam training for some kind of marathon. And Nick is uh, guiding Adam through this like bike path uh, tied to Adam's wrist via some sort of elastic band. And the way they kind of frame this opening scene, like you can already tell that Nick is exhausted of being his brother's attendant and that he's literally like chained to him as some kind of punishment or form of like interpersonal imprisonment. And there's a, there's a natural sibling tension between them. That is sort of the dramatic underbelly of the whole film. And you, you do feel it throughout to the movie's credit. Um, But yeah, basically it's, um, Nick Kroll is helping his brother train for these like athletic accomplishments that he's working toward. And Jenny Slate is introduced into the movie as a romantic, as a mutual romantic interest between them. And that creates a love triangle where, whereby all sorts of dramatic bullshit occurs that I didn't really agree with for reasons we're about to get into. Okay. So you want to take the first shit? Yeah. Let let me take the first shit. Actually, no, I still, there's some things I want to say that it does well. One of them is I kind of like that the blind brother is an asshole. This is what I was going to say, that I do like that they subverted this idea that all disabled characters must be wholesome or virtuous or, generally speaking, submissive to the able-bodied world around them. Right. And that they are like leading by example and beacons of inspiration. Yeah, despite the fact that Adam Scott's character is objectively uh, accomplished, you you never ever like him in this movie. Yeah, well, they they lay it on pretty thick. They do. Yeah, they they lay it on for the purpose of comedy. Actually, like like the butt of or the point of most of the jokes of the film is that. Nick Kroll is being tortured by his brother and yeah. ostensibly by his brother's disabled needs. And and the fact that he's just so caught up in his own arrogance. He doesn't have the time of day to care about Nick Kroll or literally anyone. The whole basically it's pretty obvious that the whole family 
revolves around Adam Scott's character. Much like um, uh, Augie's character in Wonder. Right. And a lot like Daniel Day-Loser's character in My Left Foot. It maybe speaks to what happens if you bubble wrap your child. Yeah. Especially a disabled child. I was just thinking, thank God you grew up in a foster home with other kids that had like additional needs. And then that I also grew up with a disabled sibling. Yeah, I mean, I was generally on the back burner uh, for a majority of things because I, even though I required the most physically, I still think I was like the least emotionally demanding. On the back burner, you were literally like in the back room on top of the laundry, (laughs) on top of the laundry equipment. Yeah. And then you had a, a disabled sister, so... You weren't glorified. Your disability wasn't put on some kind of pedestal. Well, we were featured on several local telethons and stuff like that. Like, we oh, did... yeah, yeah. We should share that clip. Oh, yeah. I'll put that in the episode notes. Yeah, like I've had, I have been, I have had an audience to my disability, like growing up as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, me too. I was the only disabled person really in the town. Um, there are other, obviously, there are other disabled people, but I was probably one of the few disabled people that was integrated. Yeah. Everyone thought that was a really big deal. And maybe it was a big deal, it, but it was not as big of a deal as I never wanted it to be as big of a deal as it was made out to be. Yeah, it does. It it's, it's kind of sucks being made emblematic of some kind of social progress. Yeah. Especially when you feel. Like in, in your core, none of this celebration actually pertains to any improvement in your life. Yeah, it's like it would have happened whether, whatever I did that day. <laughs> yeah. I haven't done anything to really earn this other than rolling wrong with genetics. Yeah. I mean, you did have to like endure the odd chest snap or slap from your mother or like, you know, her clipping your toes to the point of blood different yeah that was different the toenail clipping was bio mom and then the chest laughing was foster mom oh god <laughs> but yeah i mean sure and there is there are some things you do have to get through or overcome or whatever to be disabled but none of it are things that because it's just yeah, I was just part of it. You know, with uh, the Me Too movement and um, and all these revelations about the bad behavior of high-profile individuals previously thought to be kind of impervious to, right. like, breaking bad, essentially. It's like we're all collectively as a culture coming to terms with the idea that the artists who made us feel many positive things are capable of a lot of darkness and and sinister things similarly speaking like it is possible for at the average individual to suffer and you know like not every person who lives with a disability is necessarily a hero or you know burdening them with a hero's narrative is a bad thing well yeah because it it, it can inflate you in weird ways when someone congratulates you for crossing the street yeah it takes a lot of self-awareness 
to not let that immediately make you think that you are a hero for crossing the street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you 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 believe the able-bodied people that feed all this bullshit into you. Yeah. And then and then some of the harshest truths of living with the disability are farther away from you. It takes longer to realize the truth. And when you're when your constant mental strife is to wish you were disabled, then you end up putting disabled people on a pedestal. So then whatever they say to you feels like some kind of gospel. Sorry, you said the constant mental strife to want to be disabled or want to be able Or sorry, want to be able-bodied. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. So like because you want to be able-bodied, you you view these people as like almost better than you in some weird way. And then so what they do must be right because they're the people you're trying to be. Instead of just letting letting yourself be disabled, realizing everyone is a person, it's really easy to inflate a person's ego by telling them good for you for leaving the house on a Saturday evening. Exactly, yeah. The fastest track to feeling inferior is putting able-bodiedness on a pedestal. Exactly. There's also the other thing where when people constantly try to ascribe you with certain accolades growing up, you like you will internalize that to a certain extent, like it will feed your ego. And then in when you become a disabled adult and you've you've fulfilled certain obligations that you thought you were meant to fulfill, i.e. you get your education, you get your sustainable living situation, maybe you even enter the job market. Uh, um and then suddenly you hit you hit a certain wall where you're kind of unable to achieve uh, major conventional life goals. After that point, you start you start wondering like, well, I've checked all the other boxes like, and people have told me for so long, you know, that I'm uh, remarkable or that I, I work really hard. Blah blah blah. How come I'm not able to fulfill these other basic needs? What is wrong with me? And you start to realize like why people try to make a hero out of you to begin with. And the, the truth of that is like pretty depressing. So then you have to ignore it and you have to contextualize yourself completely outside of the able-bodied reception of you. And then you become an actual adult, your own sort of like autonomous person. While at the same time realizing your interdependence upon other people and other disabled people, even and like that whole arc uh, is really hard to arrive at and to go through. And hopefully, you, hopefully, you kind of start that adventure earlier in your life than I did. I think the biggest awakening for me, and I don't know if I can cite when it happened, but it was just when I realized. Everyone is just a person. Yeah. Like even when I'm trying to get an app to work or some thing that doesn't feel like it's a person, I realize there's just a bunch of people behind it. Yeah. And then you can immediately see the flaws. Uh-huh. And so, you know, as a kid, it was really easy to, again, put able-bodied people on this unattainable spectrum or pedestal where I I was always just kind of comparing myself to them and falling short. Uh-huh. But then 
at some point, I realized that they're just people and I'm equally a person as much as they are. So then the disability and able-bodied divide didn't matter so much. It was just how much of a person am I and how much of a person are they? So for me, I there was a point where I stopped feeling inferior. And in the absence of that, I lost like a major sort of like benchmark or I guess like in, in a weird way, my able-bodied inferiority complex kind of grounded me mm-hmm. or it, it sort of prescribed me with a set of goals that however unrealistic for my actual needs right. uh, still sort of gave me some some structure or some idea of what to strive for. Yeah. And then there was this kind of like moment or series of moments over time where I just sort of like lost that. And then I was like, oh, fuck, what, what, do, what do I measure myself against now? And I'm still trying to fucking figure that out. Yeah, because it's once you have that realization, you're like, oh, I don't have to try to be this thing. Mm-hmm. So it's easier for you to just be like, oh, well, then I guess I don't have to try to be anything. Yeah, so then, oh, I guess I have to choose what to try to be. Yeah. Do you remember an inciting moment where your feeling of insecurity fell away? I think it's when I started to feel secure in my job. Mm. So recently, like within the past five years? Yeah, within the past two, three years. Wow. Was it like a revelation or was it just kind of like a slow burn? A very slow burn because it's hard yeah. to just wake up one day and feel secure in your job. Okay, yeah, that same for me. Like I I think it's just gradually I, I feel like I'm making steps towards feeling more and more secure. And I honestly, I think that's everyone. Oh, yeah, it totally is. Yeah. Like, I don't think any of this is unique to disability, but it's definitely, there are some uh, variables of it that are totally enhanced by disability. Well, I think that's kind of the point is because we are disabled, it's easy on paper to objectively look at our lives and ascribe certain parts of it to disability. Yeah. But it's probably not nearly as heavy of a weight as we actually think it is. Yeah. We've talked about this so many times before, but I can never say it enough. I think the central burden of disability is how it's perceived by the people around us. Right. And you're always trying to make up for this perceived gap. Yes. We are trying to shape the perception of us, which is what everyone is trying to do. But we have this additional burden of our perception being shaped or formed by a whole bunch of other ideas, like the catastrophically invalidating nature of disability itself, of that particular label. And it's like, it's like impossible. It feels impossible to overcome, but it isn't. And like, you know, we have in many ways, which is our actual achievement. Sure. The, the actual reason why we deserve to be carted in front of an audience and celebrated for some reason. But that's also the same thing that people, when like when they see us on the street, they're thinking, oh, wow, look at you. In spite of all this, yeah. you're making something of yourself. You're, you're not just crying in your basement at home. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they're not saying it tactfully, but that is, I think, the essence of what they're getting at. 
What so one thing we can say that is refreshing about my big brother, my blind brother, is that Adam Scott's character is ostensibly this hyper functional, hyper accomplished blind guy that everyone can look at and say, "Hey, you did all these great things. Good for you." And yet, people quietly dislike him yeah. deeply because he has um, obligated himself to be this incredibly accomplished athlete at the expense of his own humanity and like ability. And to be honest with you, I can relate to that. Like for so long in my twenties, I was obsessed with maintaining my cardio and staying physical and, you know, keeping my upper body strength and climbing stairs to nowhere. Yeah. Climbing stairs to nowhere like all these things that like, you know, you talk to anyone who is trying to better themselves at the gym. These are all reasonable goals and things that yeah. people, you know, if you have the ability, you should, you should try to keep it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, my motivation for doing those things wasn't just the, the innate benefit of moving my body or, you know, being attractive to the opposite sex or whatever. It was like, conquering disability yeah maybe even you know my parents when they look at me and they compare me to other disabled people or to my sister they think well jamie is trying and so we we don't have to put as much pressure on him to keep his hamstrings loose and keep his left arm usable yeah it's an unfortunate but very real on the weekend i i was thinking oh maybe because everything is forced outdoors right now. Maybe I can find a comedy club that is doing comedy on the patio somewhere. Oh. Comedy clubs are notoriously inaccessible. Yeah. Because they're always like in a basement or up a flight of stairs. Or why, why is that? Why do they always hide comedians? I think it's, it's the remnant of old days where comedy was kind of like, almost like black market entertainment. Yeah. Where you were just, you were like speaking about the people upstairs, you know? Yeah. And, and like, and they have to hide comedians in, in environments similar to like where you obtain illegal drugs. Yeah. But now somehow that is moving faster. And, and it's funny because like when they actually bring comedians into big open festivals, like just for laughs, their acts are like actively um, castrated. Yeah. They have to remove harsh language or yeah. strong political leanings or any kind of ism that comedy spaces are designed to explore even. It's, it's ironically more accessible now for me to go get drugs than it is for me to go to a comedy show. Yeah, that's crazy. Ideas are more dangerous than narcotics. Yeah. So anyway, I was like, well, now that COVID, uh, you know, the patio effect has made things a lot more accessible because everything is forced outdoors. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of places now that didn't have patios before have patios. And because we're still supposed to be distanced, there's ample room between tables for wheelchairs to get around. Yeah. So it's really, really nice. So I was like, maybe I can find a comedy show outside. And I called one place that was doing their comedy on a patio. Uh And I called, but the patio was on the roof. Fuck off. With no way to get to it. And they're like, but we do have a secondary patio 
not for comedy, but it's in the parking lot. And so you could go there. And I was like, oh, so like there's no way uh, like a disabled person would be able to get to the comedy show. And he was nonchalantly, no. And if it was like, like imagine it, it really, and I don't want to compare, this is probably unfair, but like imagine decades ago where a black person was like, hey, can I come to your barbershop? And I, no. It's not segregation via hate, but via indifference. Yeah. Which is a whole other paradigm. Yeah, that that's a very good distinction. Yeah. They're they're not actively against disabled people. They're just like, Yeah, we don't have a ramp, never mind you. Yeah. Okay, we don't care about your business. Bye. Yeah. So what you should do is with your with your street performer um public mic, uh-huh. After you're finished asking where the toilet is, you can just say a couple jokes. That might be my Kilimanjaro public performance of some kind, acting or comedy. So I guess what we should try to do is that if we ever do ever fucking garner an audience. Do a live show. We should perform live. That would be fun. I would for sure do that. Uh, What we've already talked about, and I want to say it now so we can have some accountability. We've talked about doing like a Patreon sort of subscriber where we do like a a live Twitch stream and people can hang out with us in real time. And I think that would be cool. Yeah. Okay, I'll do it. All right, good. I was doing it just so you'd commit to it in real time. Can I tell you what I didn't like about this fucking movie? Yeah, let's go back to the movie. Um, So there's a love interest at the core of the film and she's played by Jenny Slate. And so the movie kind of starts off where uh, Nick Kroll helps Adam Scott like uh, accomplish this long distance marathon and he kind of shuts down after that nick crowley's like fuck i'm so tired of running behind my brother because well, he's already adam scott's already on to the next thing he's like oh now we're gonna do a go swimming or something yep and he's constantly like he can't stop achieving he can't stop for a breath or else he has to actually confront um, his demons as it pertains to disability. So he never stops moving. So Nick Kroll is totally exhausted. He's like, you know what? I, I'm just going to go out for a beer. And he meets Jenny Slate at the bar. Um, and she's at a wake for her boyfriend who just died. And she's like mourning her ex-boyfriend, but also they were in the midst of bro- uh, breaking up when he got into a car accident. So there's like some karmic element. She blames herself for her boyfriend dying because he was stressed out when he crashed the car, blah, blah, blah. Um, so Nick Kroll and Jenny Slate kind of hit it off. They have um, this great chemistry that's born of their like historical uh, filmographies overlapping so much. They've worked together a lot. and Oh, I thought you were still talking about their characters. <laughs> well, I'm saying that's why their characters kind yeah. of work because they have this like meta history together as actor and actress. Um, so they go, they have a, basically this meet, meet cute and the first date and they have sex and you're thinking, oh, this might actually turn out to be quite a good comedy. Like, you know, the romantic leads are, are well-suited and blah, blah, blah. But then... Jenny Slate feels deeply guilty about the death of her boyfriend and she doesn't think she really deserves to be happy. 
Um, and she's still sort of mourning him or trying to figure out what the fuck to do with herself after this happened. And so after she has sex with Nick Kroll, the morning after she quickly runs away um, and she decides that in order to make up for um, her sins, she's going to like do good in the world. And so naturally that leads to the coincidence of her applying to be an attendant for Adam Scott to basically be his sponsored attendant for this major swim that he's going to embark upon. Uh, So Nick Kroll not only has to help his brother train, but also be sit next to or beside Jenny Slate as she also tends to his brother's needs. And then there's this confluence of bullshit that occurs that leads Jenny Slate to feel that she should date Adam Scott's character. And I'm going to lead Tony to explain the terms of that because I'm going to use a whole lot of loaded adjectives if I try to myself. Well, I don't think your adjectives would be loaded. I think they'd probably be on point. Basically, she's feeling guilty and she dates him completely out of pity and guilt. Yeah. Like they're having lunch together uh, and they're talking about Adam Scott's various accomplishments and their strategy for the swim. And Adam gets like some foam on his wrist from his latte. And Jenny Slate kind of reaches in to wipe the foam off of his wrist and they kind of touch hands. And Adam Scott misinterprets that as like a kind of romantic advance. And he holds her hand and she doesn't stop him. Um, because it like it's a terribly awkward situation and she doesn't want him to feel guilty for misinterpreting her. And so she just sort of goes with it. And then it just like it snowballs into this this awfulness. You know, he he continues to think of her romantically and then sort of starts pushing for it. And she kind of goes along with it until eventually she does agree to date him. But like I just want to. I just want to say, like we kind of touched on this, but Adam Scott's character is a very vacuous, self-important, selfish person. Yeah. So it's not like you never feel any sympathy towards him on purpose, yeah. because the you know it would be kind of in poor taste for the movie to just be like, man, I can't date a disabled guy. That's hard. Yeah, so they have to make him uh, like uh, reprehensible on, on the basis of personality, or else it seems discriminatory. Exactly. But but then also he needs to use his comedic chops to position himself as the romantic obstacle between Nick Kroll and Jenny Slate, yep. which is what the movie does with his disability. You know, it's the stop sign between them. You know, consummating their attraction to one another. But when when Jenny Slate like agrees to date him, she knows that this is the wrong thing to do. But she also knows she like she says, like my every other impulse that I've had romantically has led to like devastation in my life. So maybe I should go in this direction just to see what happens and remain more open minded. Yeah, she's essentially trying to. Uh, pay off her moral debt somehow. So what the movie implies is that firstly that Jenny Slate really hates herself and uh, in order to cope, she's going to punish herself. By dating a disabled guy. Until she feels like she's paid her her moral dues. So the movie's implying 
that dating a disabled guy is a form of punishment. Yeah. And that is so fucked up, no matter how you slice it. Even if Adam Scott sucks as a person. Okay, but that's where that's where my I'm not really sure. Because if he was actually a good guy and just happened to be blind, the whole movie falls apart. Yeah. Because because then uh if Adam Scott ends up being nice then Nick Kroll's character doesn't have any redeemable qualities. Right. Because, because the one thing about him is that he shares a mutual guilt for playing a role in the circumstances of Adam's disability. It was yeah. a child prank gone wrong. And Which so, you don't find out till like the end of the second act. Yeah, until basically like until basically the conclusion of the film, like the final 10 minutes. Yeah. That is supposed to put all of Nick Kroll's behavior in context and supposed to be kind of this twist that cements that Jenny Slade and Nick Kroll should be in love or or sh- are allowed to pursue each other. But do you think that uh, the movie is necessarily saying that dating a disabled guy is punishment or is it just dating an asshole? I mean, yeah, what what <laughs> what you said is correct. It is, it's not overtly saying that dating a disabled guy is punishment, but it ends up inadvertently flirting with that idea. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And it's, it's dangerous territory. Yeah. Because it's easy for someone who maybe isn't watching it with full attention or um, maybe they just didn't quite get it to miss the mark and to see that as the point. Oh, I think the problem with the film is that it wasn't funny enough. Yeah, it wasn't really that funny. Their chemistry was good. The three of them have good chemistry on screen. Yeah. But the it didn't really hit. I thought it was going to be funny at the beginning when um, Nick Kroll and Jenny Slate were flirting. And Nick Kroll goes... Sometimes I fantasize about being disabled. I'm paralyzed and people have to push me around all the time and I get to watch a lot of TV and I was like okay like maybe they're gonna actually like dive into disability a bit yeah and like whether or not disability is enviable or something yeah which would have been really fun in order to enable the the lifestyle of an already lazy person yeah I've definitely had people say to me your life seems easy, you know, that you just get to wheel around. Like, I have to walk. My feet get sore, whatever, whatever. And sure, I mean, that's true. My feet generally don't get sore from walking. But I still think it's probably not a trade you would make if you were really up against that decision. I I was hoping that maybe what the movie would do, if they had made it less, should he be or should she be, with the disabled guy or not. Because that's kind of what the movie boiled down to. The fact that she didn't end up with Adam Scott was kind of refreshing because we've already seen a number of disabled movies where the disabled guy acts like like a, a disagreeable piece of shit and still gets the girl. Like doesn't do any any work really or any empathy or like, you know, doesn't really lift his weight emotionally, yeah. but still gets the girl because he's the disabled hero. And, you know, Adam Scott like really hasn't grown enough to deserve a crack at a loving relationship. So 
that's kind of refreshing. That's in the same vein as Adam Scott being an unlikable wheelie, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I was going to say, though, like, he he is the villain of the film, but you don't really learn too much from him, nor is he, like, the kind of villain that you that you secretly or subconsciously want to relate to like the, the best or most memorable or most uh, valuable villains are those that actually matter to us more than the protagonist because they're uglier or less desirable values are actually shared with the audience on some level. Right. You think like Hannibal Lecter or Killmonger or the Joker. I don't want to say too many fucking, you know, Mar- Marvel or DC villains. I'm sorry, but that's just a consequence of the fucking timeline that we're in presently. <laughs> but but yeah, like, you know, he is super one dimensional in his villainy. And the moment where he 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 does sort of confront the his usage of athleticism as a coping mechanism, it's like a fleeting two minute discussion between him and Nick Kroll, and it's like not very satisfying at all. Hey, uh, don't think I don't know that all this is bullshit. But I need it. That's literally the whole conversation. Yeah, that's the only moment he ever has in the movie where he says anything completely honest and he's completely disarmed. Like, well, there's also this line, which was an interesting line to me because I feel like it might have been the only line that was inspired, even though it felt very contrived in the moment. Uh, where right after that, he goes, You know, being blind takes a lot of energy. And sometimes I don't have enough space for other people. Yeah, that's something that a lot of disabled people talk about, us included. Yeah, where, you know, you you have a limited number of, of a, a bucket of empathy. Or I've actually heard the analogy before of people calling them spoons. Have you ever heard that? No. It's, it's a, I don't, I don't remember who coined it, but there was, I think, a famous wheelie. Andrew Gerza? <laughs> no. Who <laughs> uh, coined like spoons and like you you wake up and you have a certain number of spoons and every action like putting on your pants is, takes a certain number of spoons and for a wheel, I don't know why spoons, but it's it's the same thing that we've talked about, you know, like certain things take more physical or emotional exertion. And so, yeah, it, sometimes it's hard to have enough in the tank for the things that you should have in the tank for. I don't know if that's a fair excuse either. Because he basically tried to write off being an asshole for the entirety of the movie and probably for most of his life. Yeah. To, sorry, it's hard to be blind sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, and if the movie was actually concerned with Adam Scott, you know, actually growing as a person... He could rationalize almost any amount of abusive behavior for for being blind, and that's not acceptable. We have to we have to see the, what like you never see any lightheartedness in him or humanity in him. There's never a moment where he's likable in that film. Never. 
there was a glimpse of it right after Nick Kroll and Jenny Slate hooked up and Jenny Slate left. And uh, Mr. Watt comes into the room and he's kind of like ribbing him for it, for info. Yeah, because he knows his brother just got laid and so he's like excited for him. Yeah, there was a moment of of that where, you know, he was just out of love being like, oh, what happened? What happened? But then it very quickly turned right back and it, it was not enough to really redeem him in any way. Mm-hmm. And it was also too early in the movie for, for us to be on one side or another. Right. There's a kind of genre of non-Judd Apatow comedies that try to ape his style, like the the sort of lived-in, slow-moving um, comedy cast ensemble that sort of gather together and riff off of each other. Yeah. And within all of that chemistry and that history between the actors, they find a movie. That style is like wonderful. It like dominated comedy and cinema for a good 10 years for probably good reason. Yeah, they're still among my favorite movies. And like all of, like all Apatow heroes are basically like white slackers with the exception of maybe Aziz Ansari. Yeah. In any case, Nick Kroll has made a variety of, of these comedies within the last couple of years that are trying to recreate that magic, but he's missing something. So they, they tried to have an emotional, pivotal moment in a restaurant bathroom. Basically what happened was Adam Scott being a complete jerk. They're all sitting down having dinner and then some person likely on the spectrum comes by and is starting to make noise. And Adam Scott gets visibly annoyed. Instantly pissed off because he can't see he can't see that the person is disabled. And so he like lashes out at the at the table adjacent to But them. then even when they tell him that he's disabled, he's like, Well whatever, I'm disabled. Right. Um oh wait, no, what actually started the real incident was uh and I should have clipped this, but um they're sitting there and Jenny Slade's ex's parents come by. Jenny Slade gets up, says hey, and then Adam Scott gets up, Jenny Slate introduces Adam Scott's character and says, this is my boyfriend. He's blind. Yeah. Basically trying to be like, look at me. I'm trying to be a better person. I'm dating a blind guy. And all that subtext is pretty clear. Even gets through Adam Scott's self-absorbed skull. And so Adam Scott's character gets upset and is ready to walk off. And to keep him there... Jenny Slate goes, I love you. Yeah. Just purely out of guilt to keep him around longer. Yeah. And because I'm Scott's character is fully into himself, that's all he needed to hear. The switch flips back to normal, Uh and he just goes right back to being himself. Quickly after that, they cut to Jenny Slate goes to the bathroom. Nick Kroll follows her. And in the bathroom, Nick Cole has this line that's trying, basically, to sum up the whole movie in a handful of words. Yeah. You can't be with someone just because you don't want to hurt their feelings. It just feels like any time they could have really done something like that line 
or the line about how Andre Scott has a bit of self-awareness over his athletic endeavors. It just feels like it's kind of falling flat every time. Well, like the the movie uses again, it uses blind blindness or disability as a romantic obstacle. It entirely empathizes with the able-bodied characters around Adam Scott. And so it's becoming, it's like about, you know, what you should actually pursue in a romantic relationship. And it's because of its inclusion of disability, it sort of ends up suggesting that you shouldn't have to consider disability in your foray of romantic options or whatever. Yeah. And that's like, that is kind of shit. It's counterproductive. Like of all the romantic obstacles you could have in a movie, you should probably choose one that doesn't harm disabled people. Again, I think they tried to skirt it by making him an unlikable person. But at one point, Nick Kroll is talking to another blind guy about the whole situation. And he's like, he gets everything. He's the hero. He's the amazing Robbie. And that sort of resentment was interesting because, you know, it came from a real place. And it isn't very often that you, we've talked about this, that you get the sibling's perspective where you feel like all the spotlight is on that person. But again, it's just, I feel like they're missing it. I remember it was about this part, I think, when we were watching it, when I was like, you can tell they made this movie for themselves. Yeah. And they didn't really include... I'd be very surprised if they included the disabled person in the process. Yeah, exactly. There was maybe a couple disabled people on the bus or at some of the events. Like as extras? Yeah, background actors. Yeah. But beyond that, like the only time that felt inspired was that one line about um, being blind, taking energy. So what I was trying to get at before when I was painting that picture of why like Judd Apatow comedies resonated with people. I think if this movie was directed by him, um, we might've gotten the movie that we were looking for Yeah, because it would have had a more generous and empathetic sense of humor. Like Adam Scott would have been ugly in some specific way, but Apatow would have made him, a human being much like he made Adam Sandler's character in funny people or some of uh, Steve Carell's like uglier coworkers in the 40 year old virgin Adam Scott would have would have been allowed to be funny in addition to being ugly in certain cases like that increase in the laughter ratio over time would have made the film overall more endearing and then it also would have made it easier to accept that Nick Kroll is kind of like down on himself because the terms of Nick Kroll's guilt and his depression in this movie, it's like so underdeveloped that like you can't really feel sorry for him. Right. Like, you know, he's a grown man and like, sure, he works in the service industry, like at a Staples and he's like unfulfilled and feels underaccomplished and everything and is like sort of vaguely depressed. But 
like, so what? I don't know. It's really hard to care about that. And maybe it's because it's 2020 and this movie was made in 2016. And five years ago, it was less difficult to care about some minorly suffering white guy in a movie. I don't know. But anyway, a a lot of the foundation of the drama in this movie doesn't connect and the movie isn't funny. So it's pretty hard to forgive it for its faults. Yep. Yeah. The first time I watched it, I wasn't really watching it critically. It came out, what, five years ago? And it was, you know, cool to have a disability on screen at that time. But it just left me wanting more, I think. And at the end, I feel like it really tied, tried to tie itself up uh, with those seemingly out-of-nowhere moments of self-realization. There was also one other line right after Adam Scott basically realizes he needs Nick Kroll to take him back to the shore because he's gone out too far and can't get back to the to the shore without some help. Which is, by the way, totally foreseeable. Like, it's yeah. pretty uninspired. It's an uninspired, pretty boilerplate ending to a movie like this. Maybe I am jealous of you. Jesus Christ, you're so fucking brave and I hate it. Come on. I'm falling asleep just thinking about it. This movie, yeah, I mean, didn't really do much. I would say it's fine. It's one of those movies where it's so kind of niche and it has an indie feel to it. So you can tell it didn't really have a focus group to like run over like and make sure that like all its edges are inoffensive. And so it does kind of give you a window into how an uncreative person would tell a disabled story. Right. Or just someone who has no experience. Yeah. And so in that vein, it is illuminating. But then mostly, again, is one of those films that confirms all our anxieties about how disability is perceived. And I'm disappointed in Adam Scott because I really like him. And I think he's funny. And this movie sucked. Yeah. Also, Jenny Slate as well. She's so fucking good as Jean Ralphio's sister in Parks and Rec. So many different things she does for Funny, Funny or Die. She was so great in this movie. Yeah. Do you want to do a quick wheel breaker? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, oh, I almost forgot the intro music. How dare me. Wheel breakers. All right, I'll go first. You're fully able-bodied. You know the drill. But anytime you eat food, you moan <laughs> in delight. <laughs> Even if it's like not that good, it's still like a, an audible noise. So like, but if you're eating something you really enjoy, it's obnoxious. Wait, wait, wait. Is there such thing as a moan of displeasure? Yeah, there is. Yeah, you can be like, mm. like painful moan. But then if you like it, you're like, every bite. Every bite? Every bite. Oh, God. So then I have, what, what, I could just eat by myself. Mm. I could eat in another room. Mm. <laughs> you could, yeah. You could never eat with friends again. 
you'll never be able to do a food-involved date. Or maybe you would. Maybe you'd find a fellow moaner. And you just moan together? Just moan, moan in harmony. Are you allowed to tell people that you moan when you eat? or they just have- Yeah, yeah, you can tell them. I don't think telling them is going to make it any better. <laughs> just a warning. I moan when I eat. But like, oh, that's fine. I like food, too. And then they show up. And you're like, mmm, mmm. <laughs> I think you'd have a hard time. You could just moan for the next hour, couldn't you? Yeah, if I have to, I will. <laughs> yeah, I'd do it. Yeah? Yeah, I'd do it. What, what would be your plan? Would you openly embrace the moaning? Yeah, I'd have to eat. I'd have to eat in isolation. Oh, so you wouldn't eat with people. I could probably eat with my guy friends. It would become a running joke for them. Would it? Because it would get bordering on creepy. Well, they they get kind of creepy when we're like by ourselves together. Yeah, so you think they'd, it would just give them more material? Yeah, it would just give them an excuse to moan back. All right. And they'd just get real into it. Your friends would just start moaning voluntarily when they eat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just to cover for me. That would be very nice of them if they did that. It would probably weird out the like platonic members, the platonic female members of our friend group. You just all start moaning together. Just order a pizza. And you're, mm. Yeah, okay. I didn't think it would be that hard, but I do want to see a world where that's your life. <laughs> okay, so how about this? You get to be 100% able-bodied, but every time you fart, you have to hold a megaphone up to your ass. Um, you know, sometimes as a disabled person, I'm always sitting. Yeah. I I sit with a very nice, comforting air cushion. Yeah. But the problem with that is you can't fart loudly. Yeah. It absorbs a lot of the percussion. Yeah. And like we should all as a culture recognize that sometimes it's really enjoyable to fart audibly. It's a lot more satisfying like lately, I've been finding new butt positions where I can really let her rip. <laughs> new butt positions? Like, what do you mean? Like, slightly to the left? Like, I'll tilt forward and kind of move my head one way. Like, I get a whole thing going. Because it's not only is it satisfying to hear it, but it actually just feels more relieving when it doesn't feel like it's just bubbling up under you. Yeah, yeah, when you can properly, like, push it out of there into the world. Yeah. I feel like able-bodied people definitely have, like, fart privilege. Yeah, and I have a bit of fart envy. hmm So I think I would probably... Would I have to carry this megaphone around with me? Yeah. At all times, just in case I feel one coming on? You, you do. Like, uh, to be fair, they might innovate in the next couple of years. To make like a miniature megaphone? Yeah. Like a portable one? Or yeah. the fart mic? Yeah. You could invent one. Use a Raspberry Pi. It's not so much the bringing one around, the nuisance of that. Wait, no one's going to get that joke and they're going to think I suggested that you fart on a pie. Oh, whatever. Let's let them think that. Yeah, okay, okay. I'm just thinking like, you know, I'm at the grocery store. I got my hands full. And I got to bring my... What if I forget? <laughs> Maybe you could like wear something that has it constantly in position. But what happens if I forget 
and then I would let one rip without getting it back there in time. So I guess you'd have a daily fart allowance such that you wouldn't be disabled unless you slipped up more than X times in a row. Yeah, I think I could make that work. Your your girlfriend, like you realize, would have to be a woman who would be willing to also use the mic herself. Why would she have to use it? No, she wouldn't have to, but like she would be of the attitude that that's fine. Yeah, I would definitely want someone who thinks that that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that like we have one in the car, we have one in the bedroom, <laughs> you know, like... We're always prepared. Imagine, imagine instead of a horn, you just you just queue up a fart anytime you want to notify someone on the road. <laughs> or like we get so invested that we don't even, yeah, like our kids get one <laughs> and they're into it. Baby gets his first megaphone. <laughs> I think you could turn it into a whole TikTok channel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm down. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would do that. That would be fun. Thank you for the offer. No problem. All right. Let's end it there. We've gone on for far too long. Good night, everyone. Take care. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off, Jody. Sing along. I have to pee real bad.